Cody and Drew. Hint, hint, subtle. Frozen does not count. That is the anti-intro. All right, tonight we start the book of Acts. So let's pray and we'll get to it. Lord, we come to you now and we are thankful for this time tonight where we can uh, stop down and consider your word. Um, We do pray that you would guide our time. Uh, I pray that we would be a people who trust you, who trust your promises, who are eager to continue to hear your words over and over again so that they shape us. I pray that we would be mindful that this time is significant because we are hearing from a very real God through your very real words, and you also hear us. And when we hear something and rejoice in our souls, that's a language that you hear that no one else does. Lord, I also pray that we'd be mindful that um, we're being transformed during this time. Like our, our minds are being renewed and transformation is happening. And ideally, as we study these things, particularly as we study about Jesus, uh, we'd become more like him. So as we understand Jesus more, as we obtain clarity on what Jesus' message was tonight, I pray that the result would be that we would be more like Jesus and that we would, um, like Christ, uh, love people with truth and serve others um, in a like manner. Uh, Lord, we humble ourselves before you tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn to Acts. We finished up John part 2 last week. And tonight we're going to move into the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts are making up a section of the New Testament study that we're referring to as the truth about Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, we're calling the truth about Jesus. And then when we get into Romans and the pastoral epistles and things like that, we're going to get to sort of the, the um, realities and the applications um, for people during that time and then how that applies to us. So um, I want to encourage you guys. We're starting Acts this week, and it's a really, really significant book, and it's pretty long. Next week is spring break, so we're not going to have a Wednesday night study. The following week, we're going to finish up in Acts. And so my challenge... My encouragement, um, my, I'm, I'm pleading with you, read the book of Acts over the course of the next two weeks. I think tonight's study and then next week's study will prove to be far more fruitful if you read the book of Acts uh, during your quiet times, in place of TV, in place of iPad game time, whatever, um, it takes about two and a half hours to sit and read by yourself. So over the course of 14 days, that comes out to like a minute a day, something like that, and I think I'm close. So the point is, if you spread it out, you can do it. And I really, as I was studying through um, Acts and looking at it, I felt inclined to do that. I'm gonna, I haven't read through all of it. I've read chunks of it, but I haven't read through all of it. I'm going to endeavor to do that, and y'all can hold me accountable uh, two weeks from now to ask if I actually did that, and I'll do the same thing. And what we do in our four-year-old soccer practice is whoever doesn't do it has to do push-ups. So I think we'll probably just do the same thing here, because it makes perfect sense, and it keeps everybody awake and accountable and strong. So so push-ups if you don't read, 
um, cookies if you do. So that's what we'll do. Um, so far, uh, what has our study through the Gospels revealed to be the truth about Jesus and the context of his coming to earth? It's a big, broad question, totally meant to promote conversation. So far, what has our study through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John revealed to be the truth about Jesus and the context of his coming to earth? Nice. Son of David, son of man, son of God. What was the other one? Son of Adam. Very well, very well. Um, so what, else, what, did that, what did that show us, the truth about Jesus? What did that show us? Positively or negatively stated. All of it's positive. You can state it positively or negatively. Yeah, answer to the prophets. You know, there were a lot of reactions to him. Yeah. He was misunderstood. Yeah. He was hated. Yeah. Uh, he was loved Yes, lots of reactions. Misunderstood, hated, loved, revered. What else? He came to expose the disobedience. Yeah. He came to expose disobedience. He cared about the way um, his people lived their lives. And he came to expose what was disobedient and show what was obedient, what was good and pleasing to God. What else? Who did Jesus claim to be? The Son of God. Did he leave it up to everybody else to figure that out? No. No, he didn't. He was very blunt, very clear. Um, even, even those who uh, first heard him, there, there was no question. Some like Bill said, embraced that, and some absolutely rejected that. What was the context? Jesus came to earth in what context? Context and why does it matter? Do we need to do the push-ups right now? Is that what needs to happen? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They were looking for a Messiah. They desired a Messiah because they found themselves under Roman rule. How did they find themselves under Roman rule? They brought it upon themselves. How? So they requested someone to come save them from what they were going through. So who did they make the request to and who were they trying to be saved from? Pompey, General Pompey of Rome, to come in and save them from who? Yeah, the Maccabeans themselves, a form of themselves. What did the Maccabeans do? That's intertestamental. We're getting deep. Look at y'all. It's good. Well, what, did the Maccabeans start out as tyrants? No. How did they start out? 
Revolutionaries, what, what were they revolutionizing? Exclusive rule. What'd you say? Seleucid. Oftentimes when people say something, I say it out loud and then I sit and think. And on that one I was going, exclusive rule, Seleucid rule. What do you mean by that? Yeah. And what was the straw that broke the camel's back? Or the pig that... Yeah. Yeah, you don't do that. A bunch of Jewish people. That's a bad deal. And so they said enough is enough and they revolted. But the problem was over time, those who brought help became tyrants. And then they asked for help from General Pompey of Rome. They came in and then they find themselves under Roman rule, so they got the help, but then now they're under Roman rule. They're not technically free, but they've got a pretty good situation worked out with Rome. What is that situation? Do this for this. What is it? What's their situation? What do they have that's very Jewish, very Israel? Yes, that's a big one. The temple. They got the temple. And what happens in the temple? Sacrifice, which is what? Atonement and worship. That's right. And what, ha- uh, what was the council that met there? The Sanhedrin. And what did they do? Yeah, they, they executed judgment. So they kind of had their own little system within a bigger system. And so that is our context. Jesus came, said he was the Son of God. He was clear about it. Um, he, was, he was revealing disobedience. He was instructing towards obedience. He was the Savior. He was anticipated. And the setting was ripe for a Messiah. They were ready to be relieved of some of the Roman rule. Within there, there were different... A Jew wasn't just a Jew. There were different types of Jews. Um, What were some of the different types of Jews? Anyone remember? The what? Zealots, yes. They were what? Yeah, yeah, they were zealous. I was trying to give you a gimme. I was going to say they were zealous. Yeah, yeah, they were kind of the take up arms and and fight. In fact, they got into a battle where uh, thousands of them fell on their own swords rather than than um, than uh, surrendering. It's quite quite zealous. What else? Who are, who are the others? Sadducees. What what were they? Sort of the what? Yeah, the elites, the aristocrats. And what would a Sadducee have to find to find a friend? Another Sadducee, that's right. And who else? Who was the other one? Big one. Pharisees, and who were they originally? Do what? Purists. Purists, yeah, what did they want to do? 
Everything, they were like the original reformers. They wanted it to be right. They wanted it to be good. So when they started out, they weren't the big jerks that they ended up being. They started out, hey, let's stay pure. Let's stay good. Let's hold, fulfill the law. Let's obey God. But then that turned into being a bunch of completely self-righteous hypocrites. So we've got this setting. We've learned all of that through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's very, very important. And I'm really thankful that, that y'all, I mean, y'all nailed all that. It was pretty cool. Um, this week... We're in Acts, and we're looking at Jesus as the risen Lord. That's going to be our focus. So we had son of David, son of man, son of Adam, son of God, and now risen Lord. Our outline for this week and two weeks from now, which this week we start, between now and the next one, everyone reads the book of Acts, and then we meet two weeks from today. Here's the outline. One is the message about Jesus. That's going to be our entire focus tonight. Two is the mission of Jesus. Three is the means for this mission. It's kind of a tongue twister. One is the message about Jesus, which is what we're going to completely focus on tonight. Two is the mission of Jesus. Three is the means for this mission. Easy for me to say. Dever opens up with an observation. And I want to see if you guys think it's true. And if you think it's true, I want you guys to tell me where you've observed it in your own life. I've got an inward bet going on with what I think the first answer is going to be. So we'll see if it, if it pans out. If not, I'll probably not bring it up again. This observation, do you think it's true and where do you see it apply? It is natural to admire an individual for traits that we value in ourselves rather than for what may or may not be true of the person. I want to say it again. It is natural to admire an individual for traits that we value in ourselves rather than for what may or may not be true of that person. Have you ever observed this in your own life? If so, when? It is natural. It is, it is natural to admire an individual for traits that we value in ourselves rather than what may or may not be true about the person. That's a great, great example. Um, there's a sad dynamic at play in a lot of churches where leadership somehow thinks they're exempt from accountability or exempt from being um, 
able even to send in particular areas because they're in leadership. And that, that, that could be further from the truth. And so the result is what Bill's saying is that a lot of times we will hold up a Christian leader as like, I like them because they're, what, what do we like in Christian leaders? What do we like? Charismatic. What else do we like? Bold. What else do we like? Consistent. What else do we like? Honest. And what might we overlook? Greedy. Prideful. Addictions. Ego. Ego. All right, that's enough. That's enough. Y'all started rattling them off a little quick. It was, they'll come a little fast with me. Kind of dot bobbing and weaving over here. But no, that's a great, that's a great example. My, my actual first thought was in politics, you know, where you will hold up in one person everything that you would value in your own life, but ignore a lot of the other realities that exist for that person, right? And so, um, you know, we'll, we'll, this person is a, is an, an evangelical, and this person is a, is a whatever, liberal, moderate. I'm not allowed to choose sides as a leader of a church, um, but we like things uh, in people. And then sometimes we say, but who cares that they're, they don't pay their bills or they're dishonest in other areas or they're... Um, greedy, addicted, whatever else. We, we ignore those things because we so want something to believe in. My question is, how has this been done with Jesus? How could we do this with Jesus? We focus on all the things that he says that are, that are comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We focus on all the things that are comforting and comfortable and we ignore the, what did you say, the multitude of things that aren't? <laughs> this is a great way to say that. Yeah, he, he wants me to be happy, right? He, he's for me. He's not against me. But provided we suffer, things sometimes get swept under the, under the rug because I like the picture of Jesus where it's about me being happy as opposed to holy. How else might we do this with Jesus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've confessed that as a kid, I had a hard time with that whole story because all I had heard was he was this peaceful unifier, and him turning over tables in the tabernacle that didn't make any any sense to me. I didn't understand that. And so sometimes we'll paint a version of Jesus that is only a, he's more of a hippie, really, rather than a messiah. And so, um, really, what the, the biggest example is that every objective study, it said this, I think it's since sort of the late 1800s, there's been this theme of, let's find the real Jesus. Let's do objective study and just find the real Jesus through objective study. And the result is, is that um, everyone's wildly subjective. You know, if they go in with a notion that he is just this or only this, then they kind of reach the conclusion because you can twist things. And a lot of times you're utilizing resources that aren't scripture, which are fallible. So we have established that it's most likely Luke that wrote the book of Acts in both intros. I mean, just in case you have never heard this, I want to briefly read these, the intro to Luke and the intro to Acts. We're going with the notion that Luke wrote Acts, and this is why. In Luke, he writes, 
It seemed good to me also, having allowed all things close, having followed all things closely for some time, uh, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And then in the book of Acts, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke's focus was on the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and then Luke's focus in Acts is on Jesus ascending to heaven and the apostles leading the church through its earliest days of initial growth. So the focus of the book of Acts, Jesus ascending to heaven and the apostles leading those initial first young days of the church. So tonight we're focusing on the message about Jesus, and we're going to have some little subtitles under it. So we're going to talk about the, I'm going to give you the outline so that it's easier to follow, I am, a, I am a big encourager of note-taking if you can, um, and even if you don't like it, it's good to try because I, I have journals full of sermon notes and um, sometimes life group stuff, prayer requests, prayer times, thoughts that I had on a text because I don't remember them if I don't write them down. And so I find that I can remember a lot more if I read it again or if I just have it as a resource to go to. And so um, I've found that to be very, very helpful in the way of meditation, in the way of studying. So um, tonight, we're talking about the message of Jesus, and we're going to talk about witnesses to the message, number one, the substance of the message, number two, the significance of the message, number three, and the goal of the message, number four. I'll repeat that. Witnesses to the message, substance of the message, Significance of the message, goal of the message. There's a unique and significant journey that takes place in the book of Acts. The book of Acts begins in Jerusalem, but it ends in Rome. It begins in sort of smaller town and ends in huge world center. And so we're going to talk more about that in a couple weeks. But um, what I want us to see is that Luke explains the climate in Athens once they get there. And he explains the climate in Athens, and I want us to see this so we can kind of understand what's going on, the context of Athens, where a lot of this takes place. So look at 1721. And we'll start in, well, you know what, let's just start in 16. 1716. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who had happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers all conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him And brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And this is the verse. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. All the people, the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, would spend their time in nothing except 
telling or hearing something new. How might this happen with Christianity? Because I read that verse, and I'll be honest, it kind of freaks me out a little bit. Because when we gather, I kind of hope to hear something new. Or at least something timeless in a new way that's fresh and encouraging to me. Or as a teacher, when I'm coming here on a Wednesday night, I kind of had a little anxiety this afternoon because I was like, everyone knows all this stuff. It's nothing new. And I kind of have a tendency towards wanting to give you something that will blow your mind and, and keep you up at night and encourage you and, and make you feel like a more equipped parent and, and spouse and all that. So my question is, these people, this, this, this climate that we're talking about, it were a bunch of people who spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. What would that look like practically, and how might we become guilty of doing that with Christianity? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I once heard a wise pastor say that it's possible for you, with all the material that's at your fingertips, you can go to a bookstore, you can download it onto your uh, electronic reader, you can do whatever. Um, you could actually spend all of your time reading about Jesus and only know everyone else's thoughts about him and never have your own thoughts about him. So I think that's a great point. One way that we can just be all about seeing, spe- speaking and talking about something new is where we don't actually have our own thoughts because we haven't actually read Jesus' own words, but we're reading other thoughts about his words. And so that's one way where it can just be, hey, did you read this? Did you read this? And then before you know it, we could be at Life Group just talking about a new book, or we could be having coffee with a friend just talking about something new, some new consideration, some new notion, something flashy and exciting that someone said. Um, on this particular point, how this might happen with Christianity, um, I think by not sticking to the core message communicated by Jesus and his disciples, we can slip into talking about something new. Because it's possible as a people for us to gather every Wednesday, every Sunday, every life group and talk about the sermon, talk about what it says, talk about how to apply it, talk about the Wednesday night study, go have a lunch and discuss your thoughts on it, and never actually do anything. The core message is to be a people, to do something, to consider these realities, to enjoy them, to live in them, to have faith in God, and go to work. We're a people who are considered a royal priesthood. I mean, just consider what the priesthood did. There was not a lot of sitting around. It was going, it was doing, there were sacrifices, there was movement, there was confession of sin. And for us, one sign that we're just sitting around talking about new things and hearing new things is if we don't care at all about evangelism. It's one of the first things that popped in my mind in this little section was we could find ourselves always talking about these things, talking about the sermon, talking about Wednesday night, and never actually going and sharing this amazing message that we have so much access to. I've been really convicted lately, personally, because I get to teach here on Wednesdays. I get to preach some. When I'm not preaching, I get to hear amazing preaching from other guys. And I get to attend 
the best seminary in the country. I sit under lectures every week, chapel services every, every week. I'm required to, to read books that are written by brilliant people all the time, and I get intake, 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 intake. And last week, I was writing in my journal, praying and thinking through some things, and I felt like God was saying, hey, don't be selfish with all this. Don't ever be hesitant to share. If you have an opportunity, go make the most of the opportunity. Your goal isn't to just think and tell or hear, tell or hear of something new. Your goal is to, to, to go and share gospel, to engage others. This has no meaning if it doesn't have a meaning within a people. And so um, I've been convicted about that, and that may be the reason that was so on my radar when I read that, but to see an entire people that all they did was sit and talk about new stuff, just take Christianity out of it. What do you do when you engage new people, when you, when you have people over to your house? What, what does that look like? With all the information we have at our fingertips, I went to, um, we have a little piece of land, family land, and um, we always go there, and, and, or we go there you know, now and again, and we had like a guy's weekend where it was like, all right, me and my brothers and their sons and my son and my dad, we're going to go fish, shoot, hike, break stuff, fix stuff, break stuff, fix stuff, that just manly stuff. And in the evening, we were sitting in the cabin. You know, there's no TV, there's no internet. We're sitting there, we got our sons. And I noticed this funny little pattern where everyone had their phones out, doing this. Oh, did you hear about it? We spent five minutes on whatever I saw. And my brother, oh, hey, check this out. And we'd spend five minutes on whatever he saw. And then my dad's like, oh, hey, uh, what do you think about this meme? It's me. You know what a meme is? Yeah, Dad, we know what a meme is. <laughs> but it was just, it was kind of a little silly example of just telling and hearing something new. And the thing is, that's not something that's unique. I think that can happen at anyone's dinner table, in anyone's living room, at the end of anyone's long day, where it can just be this sort of flippant, perspective regarding information because of all of the information that we have. We have to stick to the core message communicated by Jesus. So the witnesses to the message. We're talking about the message about Jesus and the witnesses to the message. The message is clearly important, and Acts has 42 testimonies to the gospel. Acts has 42 testimonies to the gospel. Ten of them are sermons. Anyone want to guess the breakout? It's three, three people preach ten sermons. Anyone want to guess? What? Yeah, the people who preached it. Stephen, how many did Stephen get? Mm-hmm. Just one. Better make it good, dude. I think he did. So one. So who preached the other nine? It's two people. Peter and Paul. Not Mary, just Peter and Paul. And how many did Peter do? Anyone want to guess? Five. So that means Paul would do Four. So Peter preached five, message, five sermons, and we're going to say a sermon is more than a couple of minutes of strung together thoughts that are cohesive about Jesus and ministry. So Paul, five, Peter, or sorry, Peter, five, Paul, four, and Stephen, one. And then there were 30 summaries of the preaching throughout the book. So there were 10 sermons, and then there were 30 different summaries of the message and the preaching. And then there were two commissions that were given by Jesus alone. 
10 sermons, 30 summaries, two commissions by Jesus. There's 42 testimonies to the gospel in the book of Acts. So the message, the gospel message is important, and these are all witnesses to that message. As well, beyond these are testimonies and descriptions of Christianity given by the opponents of Christianity. So you have the truth and the perspective of those who are believing, and then within Acts, you even have these other accounts of those who are not believing. And one of them is in 1718. I just want you to see these briefly. In 1718, we already saw it where they said, um, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others says he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. So what, did, what was their take on the gospel? What is their testimony to the message? It's a what? Yeah, it's about some foreign gods. So they thought he was just importing something. And then over in 1927, it says, uh, And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, She whom all Asia and the world worship. So what was their concern there about the message? Yeah, it's a hindrance to my business and to my God. says something about your God when the concern is what they can do as idol makers. Interestingly, there are different approaches in the book of Acts to how the gospel is preached as well. So we're talking about the message and the witnesses to the message, and there's witnesses through the preaching. But what I also want us to see is that there's really different kinds of preaching in Acts. What kind of preaching do we do at Crosspoint? Expository or expositional. I still don't know which one it is. And my spell check says expositorily and expositionally are neither words. Neither of them are words. So, um, so we're, we're breaking new ground here at Crosspoint. Um, but yeah, why, why do we do that? What does it mean to be expository? Yeah, to expose it verse by verse. So we take a book and we preach through it. And we don't skip any parts that we don't like and we don't add to it because that's heretical. Those aren't, that's not the only way to preach. We have to be careful because I'm really passionate about expository preaching. Really, really passionate about it. But what we need to know is every other way isn't unbiblical. Like I've heard some people like... <laughs> Like, hey, we, they visited somewhere. How'd it go? <sighs> topical. <laughs> well, topical is a biblical way of preaching, actually. Or, or uh, some would say, uh, it's just like a history lesson. History is real important. And, and there's some in here that would even look at 1722. 1722, I want us to see this, and I'm drawing this out for a purpose. 1722, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. What's Paul's approach with the Areopagus? What was sermon point number one? Yeah. 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 So Paul's sermon was start with something I saw on the market on the way here, move toward the reality of a creator, move towards what that means for everyone created, lead them to truth. So it was like a uber topical site scripture, start with creation and reason from creation sermon. So that's how Paul preached in front of the Areopagus. Next, I want you to turn to, or don't turn there. I'll just tell you. In chapter 7 and 13, Christians would, you can write it down and make a note of it when you read through it on your own between now and two weeks from now. Christians began by rehearsing the Old Testament history, arguing that the prophecies of Scripture have been fulfilled in their time. Stephen's preaching. He went all the way back and traced through history these realities. It was very, very historical. What I want us to see is that there is room in Scripture for different kinds of sermons depending upon who the audience is. It's good for us to understand that. It keeps us... That's an area... We have such a high view of preaching at Crosspoint where we can become arrogant in our view of what preaching is right. If we hear a topical sermon, we shouldn't like slough it as something ungodly. If we hear a sermon that's more on history, we shouldn't slough it. Now, if you hear a sermon that's not true or doesn't have any truth in it, that's a terrible sermon. There's no need to give it any room. There's no need to try to cookie coat it and be like, well, that was good for that. No, a terrible sermon is never good. A non-true proclamation of what's supposed to be truth is never good. But what, when it's unbelievers or people who don't have any biblical background, expository preaching may not be the best way to do it. Here, the best thing may be to try to connect with something that they already find familiar and then let it be topical. Or maybe it's with children. That's the way it is. The reason we do expository preaching here is why do you think that's what we do here? Why do you think? Yeah. Yeah. If this was a different country where there was no... um, no background of, of truth of, of Christ. We may work through the Bible verse by verse, but we may take a topical approach. It, it may be different, but we're so saturated in knowledge and reality of God that this body of believers can handle that, and even people who, who you bring, visitors you bring, can handle it more than someone who is completely 
that the, the, the truth that Jesus is completely new to. So this is important for us to see because we're talking about the message and the importance of the message, and I want to make sure we don't ever get arrogant in our view of how the message is to be delivered, and I want us to make sure that we see that the apostles themselves had different methods of delivery for the message. Next is the substance of the message. The most obvious answer here is the, me- the what was the substance of the message? Jesus, there you go. Wait, well done, two gold stars, whoever said that. 1 8, 8 35, 9 15. Go ahead and turn to 26 16 because it's one of the last ones. Um, but rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that, I may, so that they may turn from the darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me. This is Paul telling of his conversion and the message of Jesus. So the life of Jesus is part of this. It's important for us to understand that Jesus knew he was the focus of God's saving activity in the world. Jesus knew that. I think we've established it. I want to clarify Jesus wasn't this guy who was figuring it out as he went along, like, wait a minute, am I the Messiah? Are you kidding me? I can fly? Like, it wasn't that kind of ridiculous, realizing your superhero powers view that I think sometimes people carry around. Um, He knew. He understood that he was the focus of God's saving activity in the world. So the substance of this message was first Jesus' life, But for whatever reason, Luke's account on these early preachers does not present them as placing their primary emphasis on the particulars of Jesus' life. Remember, Luke already wrote the gospel according to Luke. And here we're in Acts, and it's interesting because post-resurrection, we don't see a huge focus on Jesus' life. There's some focus, but there's more of a focus on his death and his resurrection. It's interesting. Rather than trying to win people over with glowing endorsements of Jesus' life, Early Christians were very honest about the fact that very often Jesus' teachings were rejected. And they even went further. Look at 236. 236. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. This is one of those sermons we were talking about. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When we say crucify, what do we mean? Nailed to a cross, which would be the equivalent, equivalent of what? Execution, murder. So the focus that they have is they're wildly honest in these sermons and in these proclamations that... It's not, let me, let me show you why his life was so great and you should be a part of the legacy of, of living for him. They say that a lot of his message was, reject, was rejected, and in fact, they go as far here and, and in other sections to say, um, you guys, this, well, I'm talking about the guys you killed, this, this Jesus. I'm talking about the guy that you killed. Stephen forcibly made the point that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. Look at 735. 7.35 says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God has sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hands of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. 
This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him about Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. And then look at 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So what I want us to see here is that the death of Jesus was clearly communicated in the first gospel messages. It wasn't just a rosy picture of a guy who lived an amazing life that's noteworthy. The rejection of his message and the reality and nature of his death were held up as sermon illustrations, truth topics, so that they would um, be able to uh, see that, um, that he was... Uh... Sorry, I'm having a brain fart. I just took my blood pressure medication. I was talking really fast. Hold on. Um, they needed to see here. Where am I at? Give me just a second. I'll find my spot. Oh. The fact, the nature of his death was fulfillment of prophecy. So what they were communicating, what they were saying, was that not only are we not going to hide that he was killed, but the nature of his being killed was a fulfillment of prophecy that was significant of the message. Jesus' resurrection is the next part. The undisputed center center of the early Christians' message was the resurrection of Jesus. So they focused on his death, but the main thing they focused on was his resurrection. Look at 433. 4.33 says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, And great grace came upon them all. Look at 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And look at 1.22. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And look at 2.14-36. through 36. This is Peter's sermon on, on Pentecost. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing just for the sake of time. We've got about five minutes left. But the realities throughout his sermon are um, the realities of... Uh, Jesus being resurrected. So he lived this life, part focus. He died, which was more focused than even his life in Acts. And then the resurrection part was a significant focus for those apostles who shared the first message. It's important to note here, and this is a really cool part, and this may be what we end on tonight, that Peter and others 
treated the resurrection as a given in their context. Peter and others treated the resurrection as a given in their context. They weren't arguing for the resurrection. Dever notes that it's interesting. They were arguing from the resurrection. Do y'all see that? Do y'all see the importance of that? Like the resurrection here isn't something they were arguing for. When they shared about the resurrection, they weren't trying to prove it. But rather, they were arguing from it. Early Christians could assume that non-believers believed in the resurrection. Isn't that bizarre? Let me say that again. Early believers could assume that non-believers believed in the resurrection. How would that have affected how they communicated the, the gospel? Yeah, they were able to use it as just clear illustration. What else? Yeah, the groundwork was there. What else? Yeah. Yeah, that's part of the reason they were so worried early on is because the basis of their message really couldn't be argued against. The resurrection was a given. Early non-believers believed in the resurrection. I just want you to consider how that would affect your evangelistic endeavors. If everyone that you engaged actually believed, hey, um, yeah, of course Jesus conquered death. Of course he wasn't in the grave. Of course the tomb was empty. That would make a difference. That would have an impact. So here, that's a significant, um, that probably contributed at least in part to the growth of that early church is because the resurrection you could assume that non-believers were on board with that. Next is the significance of the message. Jesus the Messiah came to bring the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God. Turn to 11.26. Acts 11.26. It says, When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Jews had been asking for years who the Messiah is. And here, um, when uh, people start following Jesus, is when we first see the term Christians. And what this means is that Jesus has come, one, as a Savior, and two, it means that he will return as a judge. So either your sins will be wiped out by Jesus or you will be wiped out by your sins. That's the reality of the message. That's the significance of the message. Your sins will be wiped out by Jesus or you will be wiped out by your sins. There's salvation in no one else. The last part I want us to see here is the goal of the message. The goal of the disciples' teaching was that Jesus be worshipped as God. Look at 10.25. This is an interesting little dynamic here at the end. In 10.25 through 26, it says, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up! I too am a man. What does that tell you about Peter's view of worship? It's only for God. Look at 14.8. 
It says, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, even with these words, they scarcely restrain people from offering sacrifices to them. The disciples went to great lengths to make clear that Jesus alone should be worshipped, that God's plan was Jesus, and that Jesus should be worshipped like God. And it's interesting because these people so adore them, right? I mean, they're bringing them sacrifices. The Zeus guy is bringing Zeus sacrifices. Seems like they're really winning the people over, right? Look at verse 19. Consider how fickle the other worship and adoration is in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. In the span of one verse, they went from a worshipful posture to leaving him for dead because they stoned him and figured they had offed him. Here's what I want us to see. Peter and Paul and Barnabas knew that they were neither the Savior nor the promise of salvation. And it's really good for us to remember, as we share the gospel, as we communicate truth to people, that we are neither the Savior or the means of their salvation. The way that they exhibited the reality that they were neither the Savior nor the means of salvation or the power of salvation or the promise of salvation. They desired the glory that comes from God over the glory that comes from man. This returns us to a reality that was kind of a string that went through the gospel, right? They desired the glory that comes from God over the glory that comes from man. That desire in them led to a desire for Jesus to be worshipped as God. And it should do the same for us. If you don't care at all about Jesus being worshipped as God, and you don't care about people being one to Jesus, and you don't care about the posture of your brothers and sisters as they worship, if you don't care about accountability and things like that, it's possible, that's possible that it, that means you care more about the glory from man than the glory from God. They wouldn't accept worship from man because they knew Jesus was to be worshipped as God. So my, my hope for us is that we would desire the same things and that that desire will lead to a desire for Jesus to be worshipped as God among us and among those who are God's children but don't yet know it. Because that's a main part of the reason that he hasn't come back as judge yet. 
is because there are, pe- there are people on this earth that belong to God but don't know yet, and we are charged with telling them. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now, and um, I'm just thankful for your word. There's just so much here tonight, God. Um, as we talk about the message and we talk about these realities, um, after, um, after the life and death of Jesus, we see the resurrection. We see just these beautiful realities that are being carried out by faithful servants of Christ. As we see Paul and Peter and Stephen preaching, we see other apostles following it up with explanations. Uh, we see truth being communicated and we see people affected for the forward movement of your kingdom. My hope is that we would care about the message, that we would never stray from the message, that we would stay true to it, that we would never become the kind of people that just gather to talk about new things, and that the result would be that we would be a people who are humble and honest, who desire the glory that comes from God more than the glory that comes from man, and that the result will be more people worshiping you wholeheartedly. Lord, you are the King of kings. You are Lord of lords. We are humbled before you, and we are thankful for your word. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great night.